In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Lights be to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. Might solve a mystery or rewrite history. This is the story we need. It's a right as we kept out of sight for no more. So I'll read a book, or maybe two or three. It's such fun to hum a happy working song. Ooh, a happy working song. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's... It's not just in me, it is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney, your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Nackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. Have you ever said to yourself, wow, this is a fantastic song. I can't believe people don't talk about it more often. Well, that has surfaced in my mind many a time, and I thought it was only fitting that we've been a year into Notably Disney, and we should really spotlight some pieces of music that haven't gone there due. So I have enlisted author Jim Fanning to join me on actually a two-part episode in which we are going to share our top 10 favorite forgotten Disney songs. Now, most of these selections are from films, although you'll hear a few others that came into the conversation as well. Uh, Ultimately, this was originally going to be one episode, but we had such a fantastic and lengthy discussion um, that amounted to just over two hours. So consequently, you'll hear this split into two parts. So in the first half, we'll cover five each, and then in the second half, we'll uh, address another five. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. You'll probably be surprised to hear a few of our selections just because uh, many of them are very much rare and really have only uh, manifested in some very distinct properties uh, within the Walt Disney Company history. Um, More of mine are probably a bit more familiar, especially uh, more contemporary Disney music and what's Wonderful is that Jim covers more of the Walt era before the mid-1960s. Let us begin. Jim Fanning is known as a celebrated historian and writer on the Walt Disney Company, having written many popular titles, including the Disney book, the Disney poster book, a Disney sing-along song book, uh, many others. Uh, He's quite the expert on the history of the company and regularly contributes to the Disney 23 magazine, which is D23's publication. Among his other roles have included working as a researcher for various film and television projects, for various arms of Disney over several decades, 
and as a writer for the wonderful Walt Disney Treasures series of DVDs from the early 2000s, a personal favorite of mine. So we're going to explore his Disney career briefly before immersing ourselves into the world of favorite forgotten Disney songs. So welcome to Notably Disney, Jim. Thanks, Brett. It's great to be here with you. Well, I'm glad to talk with you about um, a lot of different things. Um, Most notably, we're going to be uh, illustrating some songs that have maybe flown under the radar in the Disney song catalog over many decades. But I would like for listeners to know a little bit more about you. Uh, Could you maybe share what your path was coming to work for the Walt Disney Company? Company, I know some of your early work entailed working in the mailroom and writing comic books, but what was your Disney journey like? Well, um, it's been a lifelong journey because I've loved Disney my entire life. And um, I guess that's not that untypical because everybody has Disney as part of their childhood. But um, I had a great thirst for, for whatever reason to know more about Disney from an early age. And um, I just always was fascinated. The more I found out, the more I wanted to know, the more I the more I knew, the more I was fascinated with it. And it's, as we all know, it's actually a bottomless subject because the more you scratch, the more you scratch the surface, you realize it is just the surface. So at any rate, I always wanted to read books and discover more about who Walt Disney was, how these films and theme parks were made. Um, and I just was endlessly fascinated. So at some point I decided, well, the best way maybe to deal with that in a career is as a writer. And I've always loved writing. Um, I loved, I loved art as well, but I didn't think I was good enough as an artist to be a Disney artist, which of course, if you're a Disney artist, that's the top of the field. So I gravitated more toward the written word. And um, after college, I actually wrote, of all people, Ron Miller, uh, a letter. (laughs) And this was in the 80s, so Disney was a tiny company. I don't know if you could write to Bob Iger now and and get get a response, but Ron very graciously uh, responded, and he must have seen something in me because he said, if you would like to come out to California, I grew up in upstate New York. Uh, he, he said, you know, we could talk, and um, so I did, and he arranged for me to have a job in the mailroom, so it's like a classic <laughs> Hollywood story about somebody starting in the mailroom. And because of that, then I made contacts uh, in the studio. That's what you were supposed to do, of course. And um, I got some freelance opportunities. At that time, the Disney Channel was launching and I was very lucky to know Mike Bonifer and Carden Walker, uh, Carden Walker, the son of Card Walker, uh, another head of the studio who worked with Walt, of course. And they were launching a documentary series um, about the very thing I wanted to write about, which was Disney Family Album. So that was one of my very first gigs. Uh, and it was fascinating and wonderful and a great way to launch my career among the other things I was doing, because I have to say Mike Bonifer is a terrific writer and producer, and he taught me a lot. 
So it's just been one freelance thing after another since then. Uh, and I've been very lucky in my career about knowing great people who wanted me to be part of their projects. And um, it's um, launched into the international area because I've, in recent years, like say the last decade, I've been working extensively on projects published in Japan and uh, France, uh, for example. So those have been big projects that I continue to work on now. And of course, D23, when that launched in 2009, my gosh, I was so fortunate to be <laughs> around and I had an association and still do with the archives. So they've been very, very wonderful about involving me in terms of the magazine, as you said, the, uh, the website, and even some presentations at the studio and the expo. So D23 has been a wonderful, uh, wonderful outlet and a wonderful gift for me. So that's it in a nutshell, I guess. Well, yeah, that's, a, I think, a very concise explanation of your <laughs> Disney journey. And I love it. And one of my questions for you, Jim, was along the lines of what are some of the steps you take in curating information for the D23-based articles? Are you pitched particular ideas? Do you present them with topics? How does that process work for you? Well, actually, it's worked both ways. Uh, I would say mostly they have come to me. And I've been, again, I've been very lucky about that. Um, uh, occasionally, I've said, um, you know, hey, hey, this is something that I'd be interested in writing. And I think your, you know, your guests would, would enjoy it too, your membership. Um, an example of that would be last year I wrote about Donald Duck's television career. And that's really been very un under, under, underexplored, I guess you might say. Um, uh, the cartoons, the theatrically released cartoons, of course, have been more celebrated. But I thought, well, he he was he was a major star of the Disneyland slash Walt Disney Presents series, and those were publicized at the time and celebrated. And there was new animation created for those shows, as well as using the classic cartoons. So I just thought that would be really fun to look into and and write about so i suggested that and they said that sounds good and so we we published that on donald's birthday uh last year uh it really just kind of a fun different look at donald duck so that was an example of an idea i came up with on my own and that they seemed to like fantastic what's really nice about d23 in general and i think the walt disney company seems to be going in this direction is that there seem to be many more outlets for uncovering um, different aspects of Disney's history from people who have been closely tied to it um, in, in various capacities. So per the, what you're mentioning as far as Donald Duck's television career, perhaps there hasn't been as much on that. So you kind of played a role in, in bringing this to surface. It, what's it like for you to be able to provide readers and um, different audiences with exposure of Disney history that perhaps they may have never seen or heard of? Well, it really has become, over the years, something I'm really interested in, which is presenting to audiences and readers or whatever audience kind of audience we're talking about, um, things that people don't know about. I mean, for example, 
I love Snow White. The story behind it is absolutely fascinating. Um, there are um, uh, things that continue to come to light, which is pretty incredible considering it was made in 1937. <laughs> and J.B. Kaufman wrote two books about it, so obviously there was a lot, a lot to say. But I've written about Snow White many, many times. So uh, if someone wanted me to write a new article about Snow White tomorrow, I would love to do it. But I also love finding new things. And usually people, it's surprising what people don't know, first of all. I'm always, I'm always writing some, about something that, like I said about Snow White, say. And I'll, especially in the age of social media where people can respond to you. So Sometimes I'll put something on Facebook and somebody will say, I never knew that. And I was like, wow, I think most Disney fans might know that. But the audience has become so big and there's so much to know that something's new to everybody all the time. But on the other hand, there's these bigger subjects like Donald Duck's television career <laughs> of, the, of the 1950s that is underexplored. So it's always fun to, to, to share that with people. And um, Ludwig von Drake is another example. I run, I continue to run into people all the time who've never heard of him, or if they have heard of him, don't know too much about him. So I just spoke to a Disney group, a wonderful experience a few weeks ago, and um, did uh, my Ludwig von Drake presentation. And it always goes over very well because most people don't know that much about him or don't have the chance to see him. Uh, very, very much. They, they've never done a DVD release of him, of his shows. Um, the Disney Channel used to show them, but that's all over. He's not on Disney Plus as of yet. Maybe he will be. <laughs> but at any rate, that's a, that's a concrete example of a topic that I find to be great fun. And it's even more fun to tell people about it because most people don't know that much about Ludwig von Drake. So there we go. <laughs> well, I'm glad he's getting Getting his due, it's funny you mention him because recently I was thinking of different important people in my life and character Disney characters they're most like. And uh, one of my college professors who I think of very fondly is very much the living and breathing version of Ludwig von Drake. So <laughs> very much very much knows everything, wants to share everything, and has a, a great uh, great heart as well. I, w I would like to meet him. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he, uh, he'll, he'll have to wait until I actually tell him, uh, oh, yeah, you remind me of Ludwig von Drake and show him a clip and see if he resonates or not. So, Right. He could have, he could have uh, several different reactions to that. <laughs> Indeed. Well, kind of on this theme of, of uncovering Disney history and aspects of Disney that's under the radar, when I approached you to come on Notably Disney, we discussed some potential um, topics and our mutual appreciation for Disney music that's flown under the radar. And one topic that I've long wanting, wanted to cover on the podcast is to highlight songs from Disney films that are true favorites, but for one reason or another have been forgotten or overlooked because they exist in the shadow of more popular tunes, whether in the same film or the wider Disney catalog. Um, so so here we are today. We're going to be sharing each sharing uh, ten favorites that represent forgotten songs. Yeah, sounds great, and it's such a great topic. So I'm looking forward to hearing your selections and wondering if there's going to be any crossover. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering that too because when we think of Disney music, 
we not only think of what nine, ten uh, decades of, of Disney songs were entering that close to 100-year mark with um, Steamboat Willie, but we think of all these different Disney properties and the Disney universe is so vast now in so many different spaces and animation and live action. So um, there's a lot to sort through. So I have to ask before we get started, Jim, what was your process in kind of figuring out what songs you wanted to highlight? Like, did you have some that you knew instantly or how did that come about for you? Well, well, anyone might wonder about that because as you mentioned, there are so many Disney songs and so many di- forgotten Disney songs. How do you possibly narrow it down to 10? <laughs> so the first thing I decided I would do is I would, I would limit it to the Walt era. So as much as I love, you know, the songs that have been, created since then um and certainly if we go into the 90s with beauty and the beast and the lion king and even up to today with moana and um, frozen and frozen 2 there's wonderful wonderful disney songs being created but i thought i would automatically narrow it down just to the walt era that w- that helped me um focus and then the second thing was um I, I um, disqualified the Sherman Brothers. <laughs> oh, wow. Because I think if I, if I included, at least in my own mind, if I included the Sherman Brothers, it would be all Sherman Brothers songs. They're so wonderful that um, how could you leave anything out? So I just decided, well, I'll just leave them out entirely. And the other, the other aspect of that disqualification is... There are certainly many Sherman songs that are unsung, as it were, <laughs> and not not as no, well known as they should be. But on the other hand, we've been so gifted with uh, both Shermans and then then in recent years uh, Richard um, that we know quite a bit about uh, their um, catalog uh, because they've been interviewed many times. They've written their book, of course. Um, they speak to audiences. Richard continues to compose and to speak to this day, and he's in his 90s, so that's incredible and a gift. But um, who, you know, what do we know about the other songwriters that are so uh, that have been gone for so long now? So uh, that those were the two um, parameters that I set for myself to kind of help to narrow down to this impossible task. <laughs> I, I love that you established very uh, hard criteria for this. I think it probably makes it a lot uh, more straightforward. Yeah, well, it just it just gave me a way to approach it because I was like, how on earth am I going to come up with ten? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so did you have did you have any sort of criteria, or or did you just instantly think of ten right off the top of your head? <laughs> I cannot say I instantly thought of 10. I have had some documents that I've been curating for uh, developing for a while and indicating different songs that I feel like are really fantastic, but just aren't um, as much in the general uh, Disney discourse of uh, conversation and ones that people listen to. Uh, Many of the songs that I feature are post-Walt, although there's, I think, at least one or two that um, are kind of in that space. Base, um, and I and I appreciate that you're going to put a spotlight on those since I would imagine you're also much more acquainted with that music having written about it as well. So 
so yes, I think our list will be nice and robust in that sense. And <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I will say that I did not dis- I did not disqualify the Sherman. So there is one Sherman Brothers song um, in the mix, but it's probably one that people aren't as familiar with. Great. So. How about we get started? I'm not sure if you have them listed in any specific order. I kind of just randomized it. But I think the notion, as we discussed prior to recording, is we'll kind of go back and forth. Um, we'll all share one, you share one. Okay, well, um, I I do have mine numbered 1 through 10. So did you want me to start with number 10 and then go all the way up to, you know, end with 1? or? Sure, that works perfectly. I, I must admit, I do not have them ranked, but I appreciate that you do and uh, welcome that. So, Okay, well, feel, the rank- feel, feel free to get started. Okay, well, the ranking is to a certain degree um, uh, random, but on the other hand, I did try to sort of give, give them some sort of order. So my number 10 song is from uh, a little-known short, uh, from the 1950s called A Cowboy Needs a Horse. And it's that uh, song, the title song, uh, from that unusual and little-known uh, cartoon. Um, the song was written by Billy Mills and Paul Mason Howard. And it's just a classic-sounding Western song. And um, we've gotten away from Westerns for the most part, in terms of popular culture and entertainment, but cowboys were so big in the 50s and the 60s, and Disney had a big cowboy or Western uh, presence in terms of what was being produced. In fact, most people credit him with starting the, the, the Western craze on TV with Davy Crockett. And that craze that people are like... People would be like now saying, what do you mean there were a lot of cowboy shows on TV? There were tons of them and they were hugely popular and a huge part of, of everybody's imagination. So um, it's just a great Disney Western song that has a lot of imagination. And then it's paired in the cartoon with the imagination of this little boy who's, who's dreaming he's a cowboy. So the song is supposedly about, you know, a real cowboy. What does a cowboy need? And then they pair it with the imagination of this little boy in animation. So I, it's it's just one of my favorites. And when I hear it, I can't get it out of my head. <laughs> that, that's wonderful. I can tell we're going for deep cuts here uh, based <laughs> on the selection of looking at uh, songs from shorts. I, I must commend you in, in, uh, in kind of... In, uh, including that in the overall composition. <laughs> well, I did try, that was another way I looked at the songs. I wanted to try to make sure that at least one, you know, short cartoon was included, at least one theme park song, uh, at least one from the package films and so forth, and uh, from uh, television as well. So I did try to, you know, shake it out that way, but. Um, I'm glad. I'm glad you. I'm glad you liked it. the The first song I mentioned, you're like, "Wow, he's going. He's going. It's a deep dive." <laughs> yeah, and, and now and now you're going to roll my eyes when I share some of mine. But no, I'm just joking. But uh, <laughs> what I appreciate too is that uh, if I'm not mistaken, that that short must have been part of the Walt Disney Treasure series, correct? 
Uh, yes, that is correct. It was on Disney Rarities. So one can only hope that some of these shorts and featurettes surface via Disney Plus if the if the streaming service goes in that direction too. Uh, yeah, that that would be great. It's um, I mean, it's re- it's great to see what they have included, but then of course everyone's like, yeah, but what about all this? So, <laughs> but that would be um, it would be wonderful to have some of the rarities on there especially since so many people didn't get the the Walt Disney Treasures, of course, because they were put out in limited release. But um, if anybody's a D23 member, if you search on D23.com, you search A Cowboy Needs a Horse, and then my name, I did write an an article about it a couple years ago, so you can read even more more, um, about that, about the the behind-the-scenes on that cartoon. (laughs) Fantastic. Yeah, good segue. I love that. So <laughs> so m- m- mine is not quite as deep of a cut, but it's a song that was cut from a very popular Disney animated film of the 90s, but was later um, kind of reincorporated into it upon its DVD release. And that is the song, If I Never Knew You, from Pocahontas. Um, so this is uh, music by Alan Menken and lyrics by Stephen Schwartz. Um, in the film, it's performed by Judy Kuhn and Mel Gibson, who uh, provided the singing voices uh, for Pocahontas and John Smith. Uh, in the end credits of the film, it's, there's an R&B version by John Cicada and Shanice, and it was in the, two, I believe it was the 2005 DVD release of the film, um, in which they um, put the song, which is a love song between John Smith and Pocahontas, back into the film uh, with some beautiful animation. And now, in many ways, it's part of the overall feature. Um, so what I really appreciate about this is that it's a really beautiful love song with some really um, sweet lyrics. Um, one, one example would be, I can see the truth, I can see the truth so clear in your eyes. Um, the, the setting of this song is when um, John Smith is tied up Um, in the camp, and there's some beautiful um, nighttime lighting, lots of um, blues and interesting cues, um, and Pocahontas comes in, and it becomes a duet. It's, there's a beautiful instrumental section. I just have really loved this song, and I know Alan Menken does too, because he's often incorporated into some of his uh, performances at D23 events, um, where he says how much he is glad that this song has seen the light of day. Wow, that is a great choice, and um, it was uh, it was devastating to him and to the filmmakers in general that it that it, they felt it had to be dropped from the theatrical release. Um, the as you mentioned, the consolation prize was that it was at least it was sung over the the end credits, so people got to hear it. But um, it's it's fantastic that it was in. Reincluded, and they did they did the animation for it, and it's very striking. It's one of those contrasting songs, I think, where um, it's it, it's a love song, as you mentioned, but the the situation is so dramatic because, as you allude to, uh, John Smith's going to be executed. So it's very very powerful, very dramatic, and very poignant, um, and. It's thrilling that people, pro- as you say, people probably think now that it was always part of the film. 
that's the version they know now, and it's wonderful that it's there. So what a great choice. I think that's great. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's definitely uh, just a beautiful piece. And what's nice, too, is um, the Walt Disney Records Legacy Collection series, which I love to see more titles um, as part of that. But Pocahontas got its due in 2015 um, in honor of its uh, 20th anniversary. And that's when the full song with uh, Kuhn and Gibson's voices um, are are incorporated in there. So another way for people to access it. So, oh, that's great. That's there great. you have it. So on to you, Jim. Well, this one has a little bit of a strange history. It's another one that was created for a animated short uh, in 1950, Crazy Over Daisy, which has a nostalgic um, turn of the 20th century setting. And we know that Walt loved that era. Um, so Oliver Wallace created a, a theme song for Daisy, even though she's hardly in the cartoon. <laughs> and it's this wonderfully nostalgic, old-fashioned sounding tune. And then in 1957, since Walt really wanted to have theme songs for the various uh, realms or lands of, of Disneyland, uh, it, lyrics were added to it for Meet Me Down on Main Street. So it's become, it, it's sort of the, the um, it's sort of the theme song of Main Street USA ever since at Disneyland. So Meet Me Down on Main Street. Um, the, the lyrics were added by Tom Adair. And he's one of my favorite overlooked people in the Disney um, world because he wrote a lot of great songs for the Mickey Mouse Club, such as, um, I think it's called Alone on Coney Island, uh, that um, Darlene and um, Bobby, I believe, did, and then some of the other boys were part of it, too. He wrote, he wrote the lyrics for some, he was a great writer, um, wrote some great songs, as I said, for Mickey Mouse Club, and then also for Sleeping Beauty. He wrote the lyrics for, I think, most of the songs for Sleeping Beauty. And um, he provided some wonderfully nostalgic um, lyrics for Meet Me Down on Main Street. So I, want, I do wonder if people are, are listening and saying, well, what song is that? And then maybe if they look it up uh, on the internet, when they hear the melody, they'll recognize it. Um, I think, unfortunately, it has not been used as much as it used to be. But I think you can still, you can still hear it occasionally, at least on Main Street USA. So number my number nine is Meet Me Down on Main Street. Created for a cartoon, but adapted for the park. Very nice. And, the, and you referenced Oliver Wallace earlier, who many listeners are probably familiar with from the standpoint of uh, writing the scores for so many classic features from the uh, 40s and 50s, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, and so many others. So um, nice that uh, his name was brought into the conversation, too. Right. And another interesting aspect of that melody is that um, I'm not sure of the exact year, but it was early on in the Disneyland TV series. They did Where Do the Stories Come From? That was the name of the episode. And there's a whole segment on Oliver Wallace. Um, and then he's he they show him supposedly, of course, it's recreated, but him writing the, the melody of the song from Crazy Over Daisy, which became... Me, uh, me, me down on Main Street. So, as you say, it's always fun to see these great Disney legends 
on screen. And um, as I always say, it puts it puts the lie to the thing about Walt never wanted to give anybody else credit. Anybody that watches even a few of the episodes of the Disney TV show, they see they see staff members, and some of them are not that well known on on his show. So there we go. <laughs> so thank you for thank you for giving him a shout out, Brett. That's great. No, oh, I I love these uh, these selections, and um, so my my next choice is kind of in the same vein of uh, my previous selection, in that I really wanted to spotlight at least a few examples of songs that were cut from the films, um, but have still been part of the Disney song catalog nonetheless. So. My next pick is called One Day She'll Love Me, and this is from The Emperor's New Groove. Um, it was not in the final film. It was in the previous incarnation uh, when it was Kingdom of the Sun, but this is a song by Sting with lyrics by him and uh, David Hartley, and it's performed by Sting and songwriter, singer-songwriter Sean Colvin. Um, so this actually is on the soundtrack for The Emperor's New Groove. There were several pieces um, on that soundtrack that were part of the previous iteration of the movie, but were not ultimately in the 2000 animated feature. So I absolutely love this song. It's a beautiful love song um, between what would have been the central male and female characters. It was actually covered pretty in-depth in the uh, the Sweatbox documentary that Sting's wife developed and has surfaced um, in different capacities. Uh, it basically chronicles the history of the production, but um, it's a kind of a jazzy pop song with singer-songwriter vibes. It's just very luscious, and if anybody knows Sting's voice, it's just golden to listen to. And then you match him with um, Sean Colvin, who just you just want to listen to hers uh, endlessly. So I, I really wanted to make sure that people are aware that um, it's not always the songs that you see on screen, but the ones that were cut that ultimately can have a big impact, even if they didn't amount to making it in the final cut. That is a fantastic choice. And um, it's fun even to point out that somebody of, of Sting's caliber was, you know, that involved in a, in a Disney project. I don't know that people necessarily think along those lines and also it it's sort of a you're you're mentioning that song it's sort of a gateway almost to the whole story of kingdom of the sun and what (laughs) the whole story of how that was developed and then became the emperor's new groove it's it's a quite a story and that's quite a documentary that sting's wife did so talk about a deep dive and talk about comparing one version, an early version, to what eventually ended up on the screen. It's it's incredible. So, another yeah. great choice. Thanks. Yeah, the behind-the-scenes aspects of movies can sometimes be as compelling as the final product. And, um, yeah, I, 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 I'm definitely a fan of Demper's New Groove, and I think more people over time are recognizing its um, hilarity and cleverness in the yes. Disney film library. But... <laughs> It's you know, it's crazy good, and I, I throw in references to that movie all the time in, in different capacities. But with this song, it has the qualities of a typical love song, but it is just, the, the instrumentals are, are gorgeous. Um, there's some nice piano and also some, um, I th- 
think maybe even electric guitar in there somewhere. There's a lot of um, different instruments, but the lyrics are are just beautiful. So an example would be, although he's changing by day by day, he finds these tender tender words of love impossible to say. It's just you just want to eat it up. It's fantastic. So <laughs> so listeners, check out this song. It's great. After after you listen to Meet Me Down on Main Street, right? So uh, <laughs> listen to them in a special order. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, back back to you, Jim. Okay, so number eight is um, from one of the package films, uh, and as I'm sure a lot of Disney fans may know, uh, the package films from the 1940s were. Uh, shorter films that were put together to form a feature and they're really a field day for any anybody that loves great songs because each one of the featurettes as it were that were put together to make the feature they they all have really wonderful songs and they're quite diverse and um disney was really turning to uh, people who were writing songs for the radio, which was and and phonograph records to be played on the radio, that was huge at the time. So um, these songwriters brought a different uh, a different element or dimension to Disney that when you know that just it was just different from what had been done for Snow White or Pinocchio. Say they were a little more pop oriented, but they are very um, beautiful in their own right. So anyhow, now that I've said all that, this 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 one that I've chosen is kind of an anomaly in that world that I've just described because I picked The Lord is Good to Me from Johnny Appleseed. Dennis Day was certainly, uh, he's the one that sung it. He did all the voices in Johnny Appleseed. And he was certainly well known to radio audiences because he was on the Jack Benny program every week and sang, so people knew him as a very popular uh, singer. And it's another thing Walt was doing at the time with these package films. He was getting a lot of names because he needed these films to make as much money as possible <laughs> in that era. Uh, so um, he was looking for marquee value, but never at the expense of quality. So Dennis Day certainly contributed one of the best vocals it, both in singing and in the voices, the various voices he did. He did them all. So anyhow, The Lord is Good to Me is um, a, uh, an anomaly because even though it was written by the, the songwriters and I failed to write their names down, um, maybe we can go back and look it up later or something. But at any rate, um, it's based on an actual hymn. So um, it's one of the times Disney took an existing song and did their own version of it. But it's just a very, very simple song of gratitude for blessings. Uh, so it, it really um, resonates with me. So that's, that's my number eight choice. That's such a sweet pick. I, I love it. And uh, just so, so everybody's um, aware, so uh, the lyrics are... are uh, by Kim Gannon and Walter Kent. So, oh, thank um, you for thank you for plugging those in. <laughs> sure, no worries. But we wanted to credit them for sure. <laughs> absolutely. And uh, what one one aspect of the song that I really like is the whistling. Did do you know if Dennis Day was responsible for that or? 
Well, no, and that's a that's a great question. Now, now a lot of times whistling in Disney films is always by Jimmy McDonald, the 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 sound effect wizard, who who became eventually became right at this time, I think, the voice of Mickey Mouse. So he had a very strong shore whistle. So um, a lot of times when you hear whistling, it's Jimmy. Uh, I'd have to listen to it again. Maybe I could pick it out because he has sort of a particular almost swing to his whistle but mm-hmm. it's it's very possible it is dennis day because he was so versatile um that he very well may have provided i wouldn't be surprised so i'm i wish i knew the definitive answer to that <laughs> no worries it, it's it's a really nice selection too because i feel like it's re- very reflective of the era of disney during that point in time where um it's just it's it's an easy listen, but um, and it's very hummable, and it just has such a, a quaint quality to it that you would not find by any means in any contemporary feature. But it feels like a time capsule in that sense. Oh, that's a great observation. Uh, yeah, and I think it was. It's also as always with all these songs, regardless of their origin or what they say on the surface. They always say so much about the character. So Johnny is a, is sort of a, um, and I mean this in the best sense. He's he's simple, and he has a simple philosophy, which is reliance on the Lord. Uh, it, it says, "So I thank the Lord for giving me the things I need: the sun and rain and an apple seed." And a lot of people would not think, "Well, that's all I need," but he does. And then it's also a song of trust. So in the story. Um, he he longs to go west like the hardy pioneers, but he's a, he's a little he's a little guy and not very strong. So he thinks, well, that's not for me. But his trusting in God, he is able to take this enormous step forward and live as very few of us could <laughs> out in out in the wilderness with just his his uh, uh, cooking pot and. Um, the good book. And of course, I think the Disney storytellers, they make it clear this is the legend of Johnny Appleseed, but he was a real person, John Chapman. And John Chapman's, one of his motivations was faith. Um, So he was, he was very focused on his own religious beliefs. And that was part of why he did this sort of extreme um, sort of life. Where, and it was total trust, total trust in God, almost like a John the Baptist <laughs> type figure. So that was the Disney way in this gentle, delightful, simple song to say that, that about this character uh, without getting very heavy handed about it and um, overemphasizing it. It's just there. And since it's the first thing that happens in the, in the little film, we think about it all the way through and how he must have had a great trust to be able to step out and live his whole life, you know, out in the wilderness. Yeah, I I, I like your description of the character. And, and one thing that I was thinking about with the song, it's kind of like a happy-go-lucky piece. It's one that you could just um, listen to on a stroll or... Uh, riding a bicycle, it just it feels so pleasant, and I think you really captured what the essence of the piece is too. 
Oh, great. Yeah. And, and that's a great observation. And to me, that is Disney music. It's just always delightful. It's very easy to sing and, re and remember, but usually quite often it has a, a surprising depth to it that's not necessarily noticeable on the first listen. Uh, so that, to me, that's definitely one of these songs. And Disney has such, Disney's known uh, for its great storytelling and a particular kind of storytelling. And this is it. This is, this is it in a, in a nutshell or an apple seed or something. Yeah. There, the, the notion of that there's much more than meets the eye or the initial listen of a song. And yeah, I love how you put it that way. I think that's very apropos and kind of transitioning um, over to uh, my selection, it actually, I think it's a, a very nice uh, segue because I feel like the theme of just delight and enjoyment of one's life is very present in this song that I picked. And I recognize that perhaps it's not the most overlooked song, but it, it comes from a film that I don't think as many folks would be um, as familiar with, or at least not in the modern era. Um, so I selected Brazzle Dazzle Day, from Pete's <laughs> Dragon, uh, <and laughs> so I feel like it, it's a it's a nice companion piece to um, to the Johnny Appleseed. The Lord is good to me. So um, so this is written by Al Cash and Joel Hirshhorn. Um, it's a peppy, positive, very reflective of Disney movies of a different era. Um, it's kind of like I feel like it, it's just a. a perfect compliment because it's easy to hum it will get stuck in your head um and it really just focuses on cherishing the beautiful aspects of life with lyrics like running through the sand without your boots on making sure that you don't keep your blues on finding a boat we can cruise on like you could have fooled me are you sure this isn't a sherman brothers song no it's not but it has that same sentiment and it's just it's so upbeat and it's just effortless in its charm and delight. And while I would say it's it's perhaps not the most memorable song of the film, I think that would go to Candle on the Water, um, it's certainly very bright and optimistic. And I, I feel like at least um, a lot of younger kids or young adults may not have ever heard this piece, especially because it was not featured alongside other songs in the 2016 live action adaptation so i'd say you now check out the 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 songs from the original 1974 i believe film it's um song i i've had some mixed feelings about the film but i i certainly love the music and this is a, a really nice representation of a peppy song that will put a, a smile on your face i agree and it's the ultimate compliment to say of a song you could almost think it is a sherman brothers song that is that's the ultimate <laughs> uh and it's it's a very uh it's a very buoyant joyous song um that is the kind of song i think that people don't necessarily think to include in musicals anymore it's just it's just what's what's better to convey in a song than joy and just feeling overjoyed and feeling happy to be alive. And it's a wonderful bonding moment between Nora, Lampy, and Pete. Um, and it bonds those characters to the audience, too. So it's super important. And I think another 
thing about that song, which is why it's uh, another reason it's an excellent choice, is that it fits in with the whole tradition of having, for lack of a better way to put it, coined words, um, which Walt seemed to love and songwriters seemed to love, such as zippity doo bippity boppity boo of course, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, you know, brazzle-dazzle, that's, that's, that's great and goes right along with that tradition. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. I, I think that's a very fitting. Um, there, there's a certain cohesiveness to the songs of Disney in this era. Mind you, you know, this, this was obviously post-Walt, but there was, there was still, um, there was still representation of the songs that people loved of the 50s and 60s that still surfaced in a, a picture like Pete's Dragon. Um, so, and, and I think that's why many of us can think back of these movies as quite timeless, because even though they're more illustrative of the time in which they were developed in, in terms of the vocal qualities or the instruments being used or the lyrics for that matter, um, they they still have a sense of relevance and, and brightness. Agreed. Alrighty. Well, let's turn it back over to you. Well, thanks. <laughs> um, the number seven for me, I was thinking, well, what's one of the most famous Disney songs of all? It would say it's the ballad of Davy Crockett, of course, but we're talking about songs that are not as well known. So from the same team that wrote that song, Tom Blackburn lyrics and legendary Disney composer George Bruns comes the Liberty Tree from Johnny Tremaine. So a song that is not that well known from a film that is not that well known. <laughs> But it's, um, again, it's exactly what we were talking about with The Lord is Good to Me. It's a simple song and bright and singable. But when you really think about it, what it means, it tells us a lot about the characters and it tells, a lot of, tells us a lot about the concept of liberty and the concept of the story, which, of course, is the American Revolution. So um, it's really, uh, they really did a great job. Um, the, the Liberty Tree is in Boston, the symbol of the Sons of Liberty who are fighting for independence. And um, they say things like, plant the seed in our homeland, boys, let it grow where all can see. Feed it with our devotion, boys, call it the Liberty Tree. And so that, that tree that is a symbol of liberty, they're calling it tall and strong. And it's a marching song sung by these this group of uh, men from d diverse backgrounds. And it has that great American feel. It's just kind of down to earth. But at the same time, lyrics like, Stand for the rights of man, boys. Stand against all tyranny. Hang the lamps of freedom, boys. High on the liberty tree. So it's got great a great melody. Uh, one of those Disney songs you can't get out of your head when you hear it. <laughs> and the lyrics are seemingly simple, but they are very, actually very complex and meaningful. So a great, great song at the center of a great film that I wish more people would discover. Oh, I love 
that I I can't say I, I recall the song, but I remember growing up watching Johnny Tremaine and really appreciating you know Disney's uh, interpretation of American history. So I, I love that you've uh, brought that to the conversation. Um, when you're mentioning some of the lyrics, uh, maybe it's because I'm still on thinking about Pocahontas too, but it, some of the lyrics made me think a little bit of the Mine, Mine, Mine song from um, that film in terms of the Dig Up Virginia Boys and the the whole notion of where there's someone enlisting a group of people to engage in a particular effort, that notion of that there has to be a sense of teamwork or um, camaraderie, com- camaraderie of sorts, even though the context is very, very different. <laughs> yeah, kind of the opposite almost. But yes, exactly. Right. Exactly. What unifies people more than a song? And of course, the Sons of Liberty were... Um, a almost a secret group that was working for liberty for for what for the colonies what would become the united states and this another context of this is the boston tea party which is dramatized in the film and they even say speaking of the tree save it from the storm boys water down its roots with tea and the sun will always shine on the old liberty tree so um, they tie it into the characters, they tie it into the story. Tom Blackburn, of course, was the, the screenwriter. He adapted the book, Johnny Tremaine. So he, he, knew the, he knew this story inside out. And gosh, it's, when you really look at it, it's, you would almost think it was an actual song from, from the American Revolution. Now you mentioned you, you, you didn't necessarily, it didn't necessarily come to mind. I wonder if you and other people will, if they look it up and listen to it, they'll recognize the melody almost immediately because it is used at uh, the Magic Kingdom and Walt Disney World in Liberty Square. So you will often hear it on the soundtrack. And if they still do this, I'm not sure if they have the fife and drum little combo there. Um, they they would they would play this song because of course they have the Liberty they have the Liberty Tree with its 13 lanterns that light up at night in in Liberty Square. So Johnny Tremaine and this song are, are, are part of that. So anybody that's going to Walt Disney World, be sure and stop by Liberty Square, and hopefully you'll hear this song. That's such a great point that you mentioned, and it, I was thinking about it earlier, um, too, when you mentioned Meet Me on Main Street, and just these different Disney songs that perhaps have been overlooked or just haven't been in the general conversation for a while but they still sometimes manifest in the parks in instrumental form or on main street over time there have been different um, songs from waltz era that have been in a a different rendition but played um, in instrumental form on main street so i I really like that that point that you bring up because we are familiar with some of these songs even if they're in very subtle or unexpected ways (laughs) yes and it is fun to to hear have, to know a song instrumentally, and just think, hey, maybe it was even just composed for the park, you know. And then, and then one day discover, oh, that's where it comes from. It's this particular, um, it's from this particular movie or what what have you. Uh, probably a good example of that is Fortuosity. Speaking of the Sherman Brothers, I'm right? Sure a lot of people have heard that on Main Street. Um, instrumentally, then if they see The Happiest Millionaire, they'll discover, wow, it's from that. And I'm sure a lot of people don't know that. There you have it. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, I'm going to stay on the train of celebrating America um, with my pick. And <laughs> you, you might argue and others might argue, Brett, this does not fit on the list because of it being kind of under the notion of an acquisition and it originally wasn't released as Disney. And I'm like, you know what? It feels as Disney as it could be. So my pick, and I, I welcome conversation, is from Captain America, the first Avenger Star Spangled Man. Wow. Um, music is by Al Mankin and lyrics are by David Zippel. So that elicited a very strong reaction. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. I, um, that's fantastic. I love that you're including a, something from uh, a Marvel film. That's fantastic. Yeah, and I was kind of debating, you know, should it really be part of the mix? And I feel like it's it's as true a Disney song as I think anything is because it feels so quintessential um 40s era disney but it's written you know it was written in the early 2010s the film came out in 2011 the film as we know is set in the 1940s around the time of world war ii it has a very irving berlin-esque uh, marching rhythm that feels authentic it feels like it could have come from a disney package film or short from the 40s and it's <laughs> It's so upbeat and it bleeds uh, Americana. The lyrics are playful, as you could expect um, from this team. Again, uh, Minkin and Zippel did the uh, were the team behind Hercules, and just knowing Minkin and just the amount of enthusiasm and playfulness he has with the music that he uh, composes, it's very clear. With this, it's really the, the best war anthem I could think of that just lifts up your spirits and um it has a really nice um back and forth between male and female choruses um very bombastic bridge section there's lots of horns and uh i just yeah lots of brass it's just a great great piece wow that is a fantastic choice uh, i'm super impressed and it's it's interesting how you everything you say does does tie it back into the, the Disney the Disney era of the 1940s and to say that it almost could come have come from one of the package features that's that shows its its quality and its authenticity so I applaud you for for such a great choice that I never would have thought of uh, uh, e even if I was including um, even if I was thinking more outside the box so that's a great choice. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's um, it's it's great. And yeah, it is on the soundtrack of the film, so people can check it out. It's obviously briefly played in the actual um, movie, but just want to recognize a couple of the lyrics because they're great. From Hobakian to Spokane, the star-spangled man with the plan. And then, yeah, it's just, it's just fun. And uh, there's a lot of... Um, almost just playful critique of, of different aspects of the, the war at the time. And yeah, it's worth a listen. So I salute you uh, for the appreciation and um, not t totally tearing me down on, on my selection. Cause I, <laughs> I, I definitely have a, I, I definitely recognize at times that when we consider things under the Disney umbrella, do we always consider the acquisitions or things that weren't originally part of the Disney banner? And um, this is something that feels fitting. So there you have it. Off to you. Okay. Well, uh, that's that's a hard one to follow in terms of everything you said, especially thinking outside the box. So my next choice is 
a song that was a celebrated hit in its day and is probably one of the biggest Disney hits that's now been forgotten almost entirely. Um, it's Lavender Blue Dilly Dilly from So Dear to My Heart. Mm-hmm. And um, So Dear to My Heart was one of Walt's favorite films that he of his own films, and it's one of mine as well. And the songs, the songs in it, in my opinion, vary in quality. Some of them are not very good. <laughs> which is unusual for me to say but I, I almost think the rest of the songs are so good I'm wondering why I'm wondering why what ha- you know what exactly what happened but at any rate this is a, a, a story set in the early years of again the <clears throat> the 20th century so that's one of Walt's favorite eras it's a little boy growing up on a farm, so he definitely related to this to his own early life in Marceline, Missouri, and even though this is Indiana. And it is a song that's like The Lord is Good to Me was is based on an actual hymn. This is based on an actual folk song. Um, and it's just a gentle little ditty, um, but it has the strength of great American folk songs, somehow they they have an interior strength. Probably somebody that's more knowledgeable about music like you are could could speak to that better than I can. But what's interesting about So Dear to My Heart and the folk songs is that, of course, it stars Burl Ives in his first motion picture. And he went on to become an acclaimed actor as well as a singer on Broadway and in films, and even won an an Oscar in 1959 for The Big Country, but he's in films like East of Eden with James Dean and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and all these strong, dramatic films. But his start was with Walt Disney. And um, that's that's pretty impressive right there. But the reason I'm emphasizing Burl Ives is that at the time, this was released in 1949, at the time, Burl Ives was known as a balladeer and a collector of American folk songs. So he was perfect for the part of the um, the blacksmith who, who sings these songs. And throughout the film, he's supposedly making up this little song about Bobby Driscoll's character, Jerry. Um, so he's the perfect casting choice, not only from his personality and his acting ability, but also these songs. And I've always wondered how much influence he had on the creation of Lavender Blue Dilly Dilly. And I've never really been able to find out anything definitive, but I think we can kind of assume that he had some influence on it. Um, it was written by Larry Morey and Elliot Daniel, who were big songwriters at the time. And this was a big hit. It was a big, big hit on radio. Um, a lot of people covered it, and people still remembered it, certainly into the 70s. It was nominated for an Oscar as Best Song. Name another Disney song that was that was nominated for, for an Oscar that's been forgotten. I think this is the only one. <laughs> so it's very gentle and simple. Um, I kind of always think of it as like a lace doily um, that might be on Granny's chair uh, or her rocker. But it's... It's a it's a delight and definitely forgotten. Yeah, no, I I'm I'm glad you mentioned this and I love Burl Ives' voice and 
it's it's a very comforting song to listen to when I feel like I could just listen to like sitting on a, a rocking chair or something <laughs> right uh, akin <laughs> to that. So I, I think it's a, a really sweet piece. And that is a really appropriate point that, yeah, there's, there's been so many acclaimed and um, extremely memorable uh, Oscar nominated Disney songs. And you're right, this one kind of has fallen to the wayside, unfortunately. So glad you featured it. Oh, thanks. And what I can't wait to hear what your next choice is going to be. Oh, I'm I'm I tell you, I'm I feel like I'm eagerly awaiting each of yours because I'm like, <laughs> okay, what is he gonna uncover next that I've <laughs> like when he, you mentioned the um the the one from Johnny Tremaine, the, the Liberty Tree, I'm like, oh my gosh, I I don't even remember this one, but I, I'm sh- <laughs> sure I list, I've listened to it in different capacities. Yeah, mine is a, by no means in the same sphere as as thinking of so dear to my heart it's actually a modern disney song but one that i don't think too many people have heard or maybe just younger uh younger listeners have if they enjoyed the film planes fire and rescue uh, you might be familiar with the song still i fly which is kind of a country rock pop piece that centers on the central character dusty crop hopper heading off to meet the fire and rescue team um, he's setting off to Piston Peak National Park. He's not. Um, he's kind of questioning at times his potential and and what is his path supposed to be. It's just kind of a, a pick me up type of song. Um, I'm never gonna. I'm never letting go. Gotta learn to grow. Watch me as I touch the sky. Still I fly. Now I know what it, it's what I gotta do. Find a dream that's new. Give it all that I've got this time. So it's just kind of inspirational and. Um, it's heartfelt. The film itself, actually, I think, is pretty solid. And it's surprising that this didn't become a really popular commercial song because it has all the essential qualities. It, it, in many ways, it feels um, very much by the books. But kind of like what we we're discussing in general with a lot of these pieces that we're highlighting, there's a lot of depth behind them in terms of the sentiment and and the tone. Um, so I, I wanted to include this one for that reason. What a great fascinating and unusual choice i i don't think anybody could have predicted that was going to be a a choice of yours (laughs) and i love it i i love i love your um thinking outside the box i have to admit i've never even seen that film so um i don't know the song at all and i'll have to look it up and experience it it sounds it sounds wonderful it sounds very inspiring like you said and of course it's is perfect for for the airplane um, theme and character. What's better than that? Exactly. Yeah. So uh, it's the, the actually I feel like the sequel is better than the original. And yeah, Planes, Fire, and Rescue is a, a, a sweet film. Um, and yeah, it it blows my mind that this didn't get more attention because I feel like this could have been like a, a billboard hit for a lot of reasons. Um, so. That's that's my selection. All right, so we've covered the first half of our list of favorite forgotten Disney songs, and now's the time when I'll turn it over to you to share where listeners can find you on social media, Jim, and I know you have a big announcement as well. Right, so um, I am on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, uh, and uh 
a blog and all that good stuff. If you just search uh, Jim Fanning and put in Disney, probably, you should be able to find any of that. But my announcement is that today, uh, the very day that this uh, podcast is launching, so if you're listening on um, uh, March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, happy St. Patrick's Day, everyone. Uh, my lucky announcement is that I'm uh, launching a YouTube channel today, and it's called uh, Jim Fanning's Tolgiewood TV. Um, I'm sure, Brett, you can put a, a link uh, to the channel in your in your show notes. And um, it's just an opportunity for me to uh, reach audiences who haven't had the chance to come to any of my presentations. And also to talk about some of the things that I'm interested in besides Disney. Now, obviously, I, I love Disney, and there will be a lot of Disney. But um, actually, I think the first batch of videos I put up are uh, only... Uh, peripherally related to Disney, so hopefully there'll be some surprises. But I hope everyone will uh, find me on YouTube uh, at Jim Fanning's Tolgiewood TV uh, and um, find uh, find these videos and like and subs uh, like them and subscribe to the channel. So uh, I look forward to uh, having you all aboard and uh, checking out those videos. So thanks for letting me make the announcement, Brett. Absolutely. I'm, I'm looking forward to checking out the videos. Um, it sounds like you're going to really feature an eclectic array of different topics. Yes, that's that's the perfect way to put it. <laughs> they're, they're definitely eclectic. <laughs> okay, so what did you think of our first five picks? Do any of them even strike you as familiar? Well, I look forward to hearing your feedback. Feel free to always connect with me on social media and i know jim shared some of his platforms as well so we look forward to you joining us for the second part of this dialogue on the next episode of notably disney and thank you again jim for being on the show thanks again for joining me on another episode of notably disney i invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review follow me on twitter at bnachman reports that's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports, and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably, Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.